Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today we will be speaking with Benjamin Moses, MDMS, about the opiate crisis and how it is impacting the practice of intensivists. He spoke at the 48th Critical Care Congress about managing addiction in the ICU, and I'm happy that he's able to join us today to talk more about this important topic. Dr. Moses is Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, I wanted to start out this conversation by just sort of establishing some of the epidemiology and the uh, um, background that we need to really discuss this appropriately. I I think the opiate crisis in the United States is very much on the forefront of everybody. it's it's definitely a topic of discussion even amongst lay people. So how how much of an issue is it in the ICU world? Well, first, thank you very much for having me, Dr. Lin. I'm, I'm happy to be able to to share this uh, with you and with our, our listeners. Um, you mentioned the epidemiology. Um, this is a large problem that we see in the ICU as well as we see anywhere else in the hospital that's been growing for about the last 20 years. There were a number of factors that went into increases in opioid prescriptions. Some of them were uh, financial. Some of them were changes in the way we started identifying pain as something that was uh, our responsibility to treat and what we thought were the best ways to treat pain. Over the last 20 years, we've seen uh, rising prescriptions uh, for outpatient management of pain, especially following surgery, and increases in prescription pain medications, generally opioids, uh, as well as the use of longer-acting opioids, starting in the the late 20th century or into the uh, 21st century. Only in the last couple of years are we seeing the trend toward using less opioids in outpatient pain management. The issue is that the cat is kind of out of the bag. Uh, Patients that were treated for the last 20 years for chronic pain are coming in and having operations for something that may or may not be related to their primary chronic pain. These same people that have opioid needs, whether it's something that we created now or we created in the past, we still have to take care of them well now. Many of them, 20 years ago, might have been able to come into the hospital and not need an ICU bed after their surgery, but now they're older. They have other comorbidities. So these same patients that might not have been uh, in the ICU for management after surgery or in the ICU for any other problem now are older, sicker, and requiring our care as intensivists, whether our care is specifically because of their pain problem or not. Right. Well, do you have any advice for the rest of us about how to uh, pick up on the possibility that some of these are high risk? for um, increased analgesic needs or who might have some uh, drug-seeking behavior or is already tolerant of opiates. What are the behaviors or the high-risk groups that would make you think about that? So there are ways that we can use our our systems already in place uh, to identify patients, whether it's a behavior that you're looking at or or even just a, a recorded documentation of a prior need. One, the first thing I would say is to look in the record. Uh, It's rare that we have a new patient in the ICU that has a history of drug seeking or increased opioid requirements that has never been seen in your hospital before. So one, be very familiar 
with your medical record and be diligent. Two, it's federally mandated that every state has to have a prescription management program, some way of monitoring prescriptions that happen outside of the hospital. And so even if somebody is new to your hospital system, if they are not new to healthcare, if they've got prescriptions for something else in the past, and mind you, it's not going to be documented how many times they've sought out illicit drugs outside the hospital, but people that have prescription issues, you can actually validate and verify how many times what different types of prescriptions they've had outside of the hospital before coming to you. So that's another way to use records that are available. As far as behaviors in the ICU, there isn't really any evidence that drug-seeking behavior is prevalent in the ICU. The most common places that drug-seeking, meaning taking advantage of our need, want, and desire to treat pain and suffering for some sort of primary or secondary gain, that is mostly seen in emergency medicine settings and in primary care settings. And when it does happen, our emergency medicine colleagues and our primary medicine colleagues are usually diligent about documenting those patients. So again, referring back to our records. Um, but we don't have a lot of evidence that, that this happens in critically ill patients. So really, it's less about paying attention to poor behaviors that you see directly from your patients and more being aware of who the patient is before they got to the ICU. Right. I wanted to ask you a follow-up question about that. Uh, I certainly trained at a time when we were taught that treating pain as the quote-unquote fifth vital sign is of the utmost importance. And in a way, I think that really gave our patients um, you know, more respect but might have contributed to a more lax uh, way of um, uh, pr- prescribing opioids. What besides the VAS score can you recommend to the rest of us as a way to really track and um, monitor somebody's pain level? Well, uh, in the ICU, there have been a couple of different validated uh, means of monitoring pain, especially because we take care of a lot of people that may be altered or may be unable to communicate verbally with us about what their pain level is. The CPOT score, the clinical uh, pain observation tool, allows us to look at vital signs as markers of adequate or inadequate pain control. There are also some investigation into different types of monitors that can observe physiologic differences and actually calculate whether or not they're related to noxious stimuli. Getting back to what you had said about the period that that we're in now, that so many times we're taught and for years have been taught that pain is like a vital sign, and that actually drove a lot of the increased use of opioids and prescriptions. Today, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and uh, for for the last half dozen years, has been using uh, what we call the liberation bundle, the A, B, C, D, E, F bundle, and a lot of those terms in the A to F bundle have to do with assessing pain. But it's important to note that even with our current strategy getting away from using as many opioids, you have to assess pain and then choice of analgesia is a big push uh, in SCCM. And I think that's one of the things that I do in my practice and what I bring when I try to talk about pain control 
and treating pain in the ICU is that there are a lot of choices other than opioids. Once you have assessed your patient's pain, you can offer things other than just more opioids. I think that's a really good segue into um, the, the next discussion. Let's talk about non-opiate drugs that we could use, or, or not even drugs, modalities that we could use in the ICU setting to help our patients with pain. That'll be great. So as an, an, an anesthesiologist, so much of my bias comes toward what I use in the operating room, and then by extension in the ICU, in terms of multi, multimodal therapies, primarily uh, different types of pharmaceuticals. Before I get into those, I think it's important to recognize and advocate for non-pharmaceutical types of pain management. There is good evidence in support of massage as a pain therapy. There's good evidence in support of music therapy for pain. There is good evidence in support of family presence to help manage pain. There is also even good evidence that pet therapy is good for pain, even in the ICU. So just before we talk about any of the other kind of drugs we use, I, I really want to advocate for the different types of therapies that, uh, especially at smaller centers, you might see might not see enough use. Um, when it comes to the pharmaceutical interventions, there are a lot of things that any of my anesthesiology colleagues will be familiar with that we use frequently for a blended anesthetic that I think are also very useful in the ICU to manage pain, especially in people that have a history of a substance use disorder. The first, and I think uh, least physiologically deleterious, at least in some of our patients, is IV lidocaine. I think it's one of my favorite adjuncts in the operating room and one of my favorite adjuncts for pain management in the ICU. Really, the in conscious patients and people that are awake, the only real risk factor is with local anesthetic toxicity, you can start to, to have some symptoms, and when people are awake, they can tell you about it. That said, we see a, a great reduction, uh, similar to what you see as far as reduction in uh, total anesthetic requirements. You see a significant reduction in opioid requirements in uh, wakeful ICU patients. And this has been validated across a number of studies. There is good evidence for it, both in the OR and in the ICU. The second is uh, another one that is widely used around the world as a general anesthetic medicine. It's, it's one of the most common general anesthetic medicines and has only recently been broadly reintroduced in ICUs and sometimes outside ICUs, and that is ketamine. I think it is known to be an excellent anesthetic drug, but because of its properties as an NMDA antagonist, has been shown to decrease the amount of opioids used. Uh, whether people are opioid naive or not, we still we see less use of opioids in the ICU. But especially that patient, that person that comes in with an opioid use disorder, their needs for opioids are so decreased that it's actually frequently used. Um, some of my chronic pain colleagues actually will admit people for a continuous ketamine infusion without any surgery. They can actually get people off of their opioids completely and get them out of the hospital essentially off of opioid medications. So keeping that in mind is something that is safe and clinically appropriate to use for chronic opioid users in the ICU especially uh, is, is one of the most important ones. The probably most used drug that I see now 
really the last two or three years I've seen a huge increase is dexmedetomidine or Presidex. It's, uh, I think it's a, a great drug. It's a, a, an alpha-2 agonist. Uh, I think the reason it doesn't get used even more in the ICU is because of the side effects that we see, especially in our older or sicker patients, people that end up with hypotension or bradycardia as a response. So it's not quite as broadly uh, applicable um, in our critically ill patients because of the side effects. But I think it is very effective, and it has been proven to be effective as far as decreasing opioid requirements. There is evidence that dexmedetomidine is also uh, maybe beneficial for uh, delirium in the ICU. And I think that it hasn't been necessarily sussed out whether some of that is by minimizing how much opioids people are getting in the, because of the, the deliriogenic effect of opioids. It's possible that by limiting how much opioid people are getting by giving them dexmedetomidine, they're also having less delirium. That's just kind of my, my personal insight on that. Oh, I totally agree with you on that, yeah. Um, and then one that we don't usually think of as an ICU medication, but we use in, in our ICU at UVA, and I've, I've seen it used other places, uh, are gabapentinoids. Now, when people are in the ICU and don't have any enteral route for medication, it's obviously you can't use it. But anybody that has enteral access, there's good evidence that using gabapentinoids in the perioperative period decreases the conversion of acute pain to chronic pain, meaning the three and six months out after surgery, when people are far away from the hospital, their opioid use is actually as much as 50% less by using gabapentin in the perioperative period. So those are the non-opioids, kind of the general non-opioid pharmaceuticals that I'd like to talk about. Now, you mentioned something earlier um, when we were talking before we got started about uh, local anesthetics uh, and using neuraxial uh, or nerve block te techniques. And I think that's that's something that is underutilized in the ICU. Um, I personally am not a, a, a an interventional pain specialist. I'm not an acute pain specialist. I'm not a regionalist, so I, I'm not going to comment on technique. But what I can say is that the evidence in support of neuraxial techniques, in, in support of rib blocks for trauma patients, in support of uh, nerve blocks or total joints is enormous that it especially especially in the first 24 to 48 hours we're almost completely avoiding opio opioids in those patients and what we know is that really it's those first few days that we tend to ramp up the opioid use if you can limit it in that first few days you may actually be able to decrease the incidence of long-term opioid use well as an anesthesiologist myself and as somebody who actually specializes in anesthesia, this is bringing joy to my heart. I, I, I agree with you. I think they are very powerful techniques that uh, are not that commonly used in the ICU uh, just because I think the two specialties don't tend to historically interact that much. But those are very powerful techniques that do not create, for example, opiate tolerance, um, do deliver a conscious patient minimizing delirium, and I sort of feel like with the goals that we now have in critical care, uh, they, they, they dovetail beautifully. So, you know, I think it definitely is time for the various specialties in the hospital that don't tend to interact much to start um, uh, collaborating more and to, uh, in appropriate situations, uh, bring it, uh, the regional anesthesia techniques into the ICU. I remember one very powerful example I had that uh, 
that my team actually published in um, in the Azra Journal for Regional Anesthesia. It was a elderly man with cirrhosis who had upper extremity necrotizing fasciitis, and he had cirrhosis, so he was not actually metabolizing the opiates, but he had pain. He had legitimate, excruciating postoperative pain. So how were we going to go about actually allowing this man to stop being delirious but yet have good pain control? Well, it, it was a supracurricular block, and it worked really, really well. We put the catheter in and got him off the vent in the next hour. So that was a very powerful illustration for me and my team at the time of how um, a out-of-the-box um, solution could actually deliver. So I, I, I totally agree with you on that. That makes me want to ask you more about um, a follow-up question I had for you, which is how to best take care of these patients with increased pain needs in the hospital, not just the ICU, but the hospital as well. Do, 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 do you have a re any recommendations about uh, the way they're treated? Is it a multidisciplinary team that does that? What types of treatment alliances work for this patient population? How do they get follow followed up after their ICU care? Do, do you have any thoughts about I, I do. Uh, that's probably, considering that our goal is always to get people out of the ICU alive, the assumption is that people are going to need continued care after they leave the ICU, and it's our responsibility to set them up for success. Part of what we do, and I think what most of us are very comfortable with, is involving consultants for disease-specific processes. Somebody has kidney failure, we involve a nephrologist. Somebody has liver failure, we can involve a hepatologist or a transplant surgery service. And those of us who train in anesthesiology think of ourselves generally as, uh, I think, safe to say, experts in, in pain management, at least to some degree. We all have significant experience in doing it. The trap is thinking that we're the only ones who can do it, especially those of us who stay in the ICU most of the time. I might be able to do a bang-up job of taking care of somebody that has a history of multi-substance use outside the ICU and do a great job caring for them while they're in my care. But if I don't involve a chronic pain physician, an acute pain specialist, or especially palliative medicine team to help take care of that patient after they leave the ICU, I have totally failed them. So I think that's important to remember is that the best case scenario for somebody after they leave the ICU is that we have established already a systematic approach to treating all of their problems, which includes their acute and chronic pain, before they get to the floor, before they go home. In my practice, it's frequently our chronic pain team that will follow them throughout the hospitalization. Increasingly, though, I'm able to convince my colleagues that palliative medicine doctors aren't just doctors who deal with death. They're also people who are, of course, specialists in symptom management. Thinking of this as being a disease process like any other that has symptoms that we should control, involving palliative medicine consultants in the ICU for people who aren't dying but who have a chronic pain problem is one of the best ways to ensure they have follow-up during their hospitalization and as outpatients because they frequently will follow patients into the community. The palliative care physicians. Yes. That's great. Yes. Now, I, I, some of my, my friends and colleagues uh, at UVA practice uh, 
both internal medicine and palliative medicine. Some of them, uh, I, I have friends and colleagues that are anesthesiologists, intensivists that also practice palliative medicine. So people that have this uh, perspective of having taken care of these critically ill patients, not just treating symptoms. They actually are excellent medicine physicians, but also aware of how best to get them through the system from the ICU to the floor to home and continuing to manage and support their uh, symptom management needs. Right. I think that is one of the most exciting things I've personally seen in the last few years in critical care is the breakdown of the various silos we have. So, for example, you talking about the need for practitioners to follow these patients through throughout their healthcare to deal with their pain control. I think that's really, really important. Um, I wanted to make sure that we finish covering those medications that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to give people just a little bit more information about, for example, ketamine. When you use ketamine um, at your hospital, do you use it as boluses? Do you use it as infusions? Um, did you have to go through your hospital's PNT committee or um, the um, nursing administration to make sure that you had appropriate monitoring situations and procedures and protocols? Right. So uh, in the acute perioperative period where our patients are still being managed by the anesthesiologist, we frequently will use uh, either a combination of bolus and infusion ketamine from the operating room into the PACU. Uh, I think it's an excellent rescue drug as a bolus in small doses for uncontrolled post-surgical pain. What we have done for people that have chronic pain issues that we think ketamine is going to be a good adjunct for, the way we had to do it was uh, use the chronic pain consult team as the primary managers of ketamine. So when I order uh, ketamine infusion for one of my patients, so we don't usually do boluses in the ICU, when I order a a low-dose ketamine infusion, excuse me, um, in the ICU, it is required that I involve the the chronic pain team to manage it. So actually going with what we were were just talking about, breaking down these silos, making sure that there's continuity, when I involve the chronic pain team for that, they continue, actually they're now on board as a consultant and will follow that patient forward even if they weren't part of the chronic pain uh, plan to begin with. So that that is what we we typically will do. And as far as the, the timing of it, it's not something you know, that you would add on and just keep it running for weeks. Usually what we see is our patients are on ketamine for one to three days as a a continuous infusion, and we'll titrate down as as we get them under control as we're trying to liberate them from their other ICU interventions. What about the uh, gabapentinoids? Do you use them for the short term? Do you use them for the foreseeable future? Or what is your um, trend for... Uh, prescribing it? I th- it's it's important to... I, I, you ask a great question. Um, how long are you supposed to use these drugs? Most of our patients that come in that have chronic pain, I say most, not all, will have already been engaged in some sort of therapy with a chronic pain specialist as an outpatient. So many of these patients come in already taking gabapentin. And I think the key there is as with other non-opioid pain adjuncts that our patients will take as an outpatient, it's our responsibility to ensure they are back on those medicines because of their effects on chronic pain and acute pain. 
you ask about gabapentin, but it's important that we also talk about SSRIs. There's, there's good evidence that SSRIs are effective not just in chronic pain, but also in acute pain. Even the single dose of an SSRI perioperatively can decrease opioid requirements in the, in the postoperative period, which is, kind of flies in the face of everything we think about using SSRIs because they they're, take weeks to have effect on depression. But it's actually very effective even in the short term for, for chronic pain. Sorry, getting back to gabapentin. I think that we can use gabapentin in the ICU. It takes a while to titrate up to a, an effective dose frequently. So it's our responsibility to initiate therapy and also engage the proper people that can continue the titration after the ICU. I almost never start somebody on gabapentin that I don't anticipate will benefit from it for a longer period after they've left the ICU. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about patients who, whose expectations don't quite align with yours, for example. Uh, when, when you were talking just now about, for example, like the SSRIs or the gabapentinoids, which are clinically very effective but may not necessarily achieve a certain patient's expectations of what those medications should achieve, I, I just wonder, how do you get those patients on board with your, your care plans, and what happens when they, when they don't? When they don't is arguably one of the greatest challenges that any intensivist faces, and it's not just with pain control. I think that's a challenge that we face with all different types of interventions that we do in the ICU. People come into the hospital with a certain expectation of what their stay will look like. And it's our responsibility to offer things that make sense, not offer things that don't make sense. This is part of a larger conversation, I think. So specific to what you're, what you're talking about, what we're not often taught, or at least historically we're not often taught, is conflict re- resolution with our patients. And it's becoming a bigger part of medical education and resident education, but it really wasn't a big part of it when I was going through medical school even a dozen years ago, was conflict resolution. And the issue is we are taking care of people that were unfortunately often set up by our predecessors or even sometimes set up by us to have inappropriate expectations or unrealistic expectations. We also live in a day and age of social media and, uh, of course, all the things that we see in entertainment and TV and the movies. Oftentimes, people have a picture in their head of what a hospital is supposed to look like, what care is supposed to look like that isn't based on an actual offering from uh, medical professionals or from the hospital itself. They come in with their movie experience. Okay, it's going to look like this. Or they... Uh, whatever their their favorite television show, oh, I saw this on ER, so I expect that this is what's going to happen. From the moment somebody gets to the ICU, rather than starting off trying to deconflict things, I do my best to establish a good relationship with my patients and their families. And I think that good pain control, good care of people that have uh, substance use disorder, and good good care, best care of people that might not have the same picture in their heads of what they're supposed to have happening. You know, you were talking specifically about some of these non-opioid medications, but regardless of what the medicine is, our best care is predicated on establishing a good rapport, being honest, being direct, 
and answering questions to the best of our ability without promising things that we can't give. If somebody says, you know, I'm still having pain, you told me you were going to fix my pain, my, my response is, I am doing the best thing that I can do for you and your body. And my goal is to get your pain under control. That doesn't necessarily mean having no pain at all. It means having a tolerable amount of pain. So when I ask people about their pain in the ICU, in the, the recovery area after doing an anesthetic, it's rarely, are you pain-free? It's, are you comfortable? Is this a tolerable amount of pain? And reframing that for patients, especially people that come in with potentially unrealistic expectations, is really fundamental in making sure that you get to achieve the same goals. Yes, I think that is a very nice way to reframe this topic for, for, for ourselves, how, how to really um, make it more comfortable to talk to patients about this, that this is actually clinically the goal that we're trying to achieve. I, I think it's a, a difficult concept for a lot of us in healthcare, not, not specifically physicians. For example, nurses are, uh, have a very strong sense of obligation toward their patients and the amount of comfort they're supposed to bring. And, you know, there's a lot of charting that happens and people have to chart how, you know, z from zero to 10, what is your pain level? And nowadays, I think there's even some economic pressure. There's now, um, I, I wrote this out for myself, there's now the HCAPS score that uh, hospitals get reimbursed for, the Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems. It's a survey that patients fill out and their satisfaction scores um, drive a certain amount of hospitals reimbursement. So I think psychologically for healthcare providers now, there's this added pressure of, oh, this patient's not going to be happy. Um, have you had any experiences with people who worry about this? Or um, ha have you seen that this actually uh, affects the way the economics are? I can't say that I've been directly involved in the way the economics of HCAP scores affect ICU care. What I can say is kind of like what we were just talking about, satisfaction comes from having your expectations met. People are satisfied when they get what they expect to get. If I go to a restaurant and I order a meal, if what I order comes out, I'm satisfied. If I order something and what comes out is something different, I'm not satisfied. People who expect to be pain-free in the hospital and still have pain are unsatisfied. If they expect to be comfortable and have their needs met, meaning have an appropriate amount of pain medication, as well as improvement in their health status, their expectations can be met and therefore their satisfaction should be improved. We set ourselves up for this by calling pain a vital sign and publicizing that. And it really, it was us in also, the, our, our friends in the pharmaceutical community, I'm, I'm not trying to point fingers, um, because we're all complicit, that it's okay to say that pain scores are important, but we also have to engage our, our patients in a conversation about what good pain control means, that it doesn't mean the absence of pain. It means that, that our patients are not in misery. Um, my wife is a, sorry to go a little off topic, my wife's a pediatric hematologist oncologist, and she takes care of kids with sickle cell disease that present with chronic pain all the time. And these patients will, will come in, 
in a pain crisis and be playing on their phones and be able to respond in an even tone of voice with a normal blood pressure and normal heart rate that they're in 10 out of 10 pain and need more medications. When you have somebody like that, it's important to identify something beyond the number. You have to look beyond the number. You have to look at what normal is for that person. There are a lot of people that will say they're in 9 out of 10 pain, but when you ask them more, a normal day for them is 7 out of 10 pain. So trying to achieve zero pain is not only unrealistic, it's inconsistent with what they're used to. So making sure that we know our patients well enough to know what a good, what, what success looks like so that we can then counsel them, okay, you're telling me this is what a good day is for you or what a normal day is for you. My goal is to get close to that. And our goal is to work together to make sure that we are getting close to what normal is for you, which isn't frequently uh, zero pain. Right. I think that's a really good thing to remind all of us. So thank you for bringing that in, actually. I think that was very relevant. Uh, to summarize, I, I think what you were uh, saying about the topic of um, critical care uh, pain management is really what the SCCM is about. It, it's about really utilizing all of your resources, utilizing the various pharmacological agents available, um, including all of the non-opioid ones, uh, thinking about techniques like regional anesthesia when they're applicable. Absolutely. Um, thinking about uh, utilizing various um, allied professionals, anesthesiologists, uh, pharmacists, the outpatient team, palliative care. You talked about music, massage. So really all the different disciplines. And then you're also telling us that we really need to go back and focus on the patient, talk to the patient, uh, reset the expectations, know what their expectations are, and working that out. Does that sound like a pretty good summary of what I, we talked about? I think that's exactly what we talked about, and yeah. I think it's, it's a strategy that should be um, pretty generalizable, uh, not just in the ICU. I think, uh, I think any physician uh, that has a patient that may or may not have a substance use disorder should be able to take the same approach and apply it in a variety of situations in the ICU and outside of it. Right. Sounds good. Well, I think on that note, we will come to our conclusion. Um, this concludes yet another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast series. For the Eye Critical Care team, I am Ludwig Lin. Thank you. Ludwig Lin, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altabates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information.
The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.